Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Bubbles, kick us off, man. All right. So this week on the Agile Wire, we've got Joanna Rothman. Joanna is a prolific author, uh, consultant, 18 books she's written now. And uh, her most recent three came out in a series, uh, Modern Management Made Easy, and uh, just finished reading those. And we want to really kind of dive into why write these three books after 50, you've written 15 books, Joanna. Why write another three? Like what, what, what more is there to say? Um, and, and, um, and why, and why do it now? Like in the middle of COVID, um, you know, this pandemic, you know, what, what, what led you to to getting started with this, these books? So Esther and I, Esther Derby and I wrote Behind Closed Doors, Secrets of Great Management. And we thought, okay, this is great. Nobody needs another management book from us. And and then I I started to write these management myths when I was the technical editor for AgileConnection.com. And I wrote a myth a month for three years. And I thought, okay, I wrote the I wrote the myths. I'll, I'll just notice this word, just collect them into books that we uh, into one book. People can read them. They'll figure stuff out. I won't need to do any more. And as I as I consulted and with my clients and I, as I collected the myths into what I thought would be one book, book, I realized, oh my goodness, managers are still not not doing things that would help them. They're they're working act actually. Rewind. They're working in ways that actually harm what they want. Right? Mm-hmm. They want business agility. They're still focused on individual people and items. They want um, adaptability in the organization. They want to plan for a whole year and based on estimation, right? All the stuff that we know does not work, but they're still kind of stuck. And these are not stupid people, right? It's not the people who are stupid. It's the system. Mm -hmm. So, and the, the system is left over, whatever it is from, from everywhere. But it's not so if we are part of a system how can we change the system and that's when i realized i could not put everything into one book cuz it would be 500 or 600 pages nobody would read that right mm-hmm. so i figured okay split them into three books maybe i could get people to read book 1 first if i made it book 1 that's manage yourself um so far my my data from book sales is no People are not reading that book. So, okay, at some point they will, but yeah. Which book do people tend to read the most? The third one? That would have been my guess. Lead an innovative organization. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why do you you think that is? Because that that seems like putting the cart before the, or the the horse before the carriage, right? Uh, let Let me learn about how to lead an organization before I learn how to, you know, manage. Lead myself. Yeah. <laughs> so I really think that that's because that's the goal, right? People are so focused on the direct way to get to a goal, they forget about all this obliqueness that actually, if we we can keep that goal in mind, and we should, right? We need to say, here's where we're headed. But if we're not thinking about all the the interesting ways to get to that goal, then we don't we don't realize we have to prepare 
teams to get to that goal. We don't realize we have to be vulnerable in ways hmm, not so comfortable, at least for me. Every time I'm, I'm better at asking for help, I'm better at saying I don't know now. But every time, every time I do this, I, I still get that little feeling in my throat like, oh, people are going to think I'm a fraud. I have imposter syndrome if I have to ask for help. Fine, right? I mean, I am a human. We are all human. How can we, um, how can we actually optimize for our humanity instead of thinking that we're automatons? Mm-hmm. I love that. You know, and I think that people that the first book just, I don't know, was attractive. I'll tell you when, when I got the link from you, I was like, Ooh, I'm going with the third book first, but I thought that was just me because I, that's the stuff I'm the most interested in. Is I love, cha- you know, changing at the organizational that's, that's level. Exactly what I was thinking. I was like, Jeff is jumping right to the third book. <laughs> yep. But now that I read third, so I kind of read it backwards. I read third. Um, then I read one and then I read two. But now I'm thinking I should go back and read thir- three again. Be like, that's a probably a good, pretty good progression actually for people. Because if you understand that why, where you're going, and then you get into like, okay, what do I need to do? And then how do I serve other people? Okay, now how do I put that into the broader scope of things? Maybe that's a good progression. But you need to see the why, and then you can go back and see it in a different lens, you know, later on. So this is yeah. this is really kind of cool to talk through because. Uh, like, I think we've all got those biases uh, in us, right? And so, Jeff, you, you've you got that bias towards organizational change. It's what you love doing, right? Um, yeah. But then I jumped right in with the second one because that was that was my bias. So I, I thought back to when I was a people manager, you know, what were all, were all the things that I was doing wrong and uh, what would I have taken away from this book? Um, I, I just think it's interesting how we, we each come in with this. When we think management, we're thinking different things, right? Some people are thinking the organization, some people are thinking themselves, and some people are thinking um, uh, other people. So I just thought that was kind of neat how, how our biases actually affect those decisions that we're going after. Um, so I, I, one of the bigger questions that I had as I was reading this book, because Jeff and I have had some healthy debate that going back and forth about this in the past. Um, and, and again, I'll bring up those biases because I, and, and not to beat Jeff up, I think he'd be great at this as well. Um, but I, I, I've been that manager. I've been a people manager for a few years of time. So I have that skill set under my belt. I think Jeff, you're more of a coach. Have, have you ever been like a, a literal line manager, first line manager? I didn't think. Um, nope. I've never had direct reports that I've, that I've had. No. Yeah. But you've but. certainly been a change agent, but I, yep. I, I just want to kind of call out there. Um, that, that difference there. Um, shoot. Now, where was I going with that thought? Um, where, yeah, the, here we go. Where, where is that manager role going into the future? Because, uh, I think Jeff, you've gone back and forth with this. I think you're still on the side of, uh, the, okay. The, they're okay. But I don't think in a real agile organization, I'm putting words in your mouth. Let me just speak for myself. <laughs> yeah, let, you say what you say and I'll, I'll tell you yeah, yeah, yeah. my opinion after that. How about perfect? Um, I, I also go back and forth with this quite a bit. Um, there are times where I'm like, management is a skill, just like developing code or or uh, uh, you know testing or any other specialty. That is a skill set, and it still needs to exist in an organization. I just don't think it's a top down existence in an organization. I think, especially, so the three of us, Johanna, you, you know, twenty five plus years of consulting. Jeff, I think you're maybe at fifteen to twenty years of consulting. I'm probably right around as well. They're like. Not everybody is at that level of mastery, right? Not every, or 
in that career journey. Some people are a lot earlier in that. And so they need a little bit more support and guidance in there. And I think that's the role of, of the manager or that manager skill set. It just doesn't, maybe we just don't call them a manager, but I still think it's important. All right. So I just spieled a lot, Jeff. What were your Yeah. So, so I think the role of the manager is going into more of really more, much more of a coach. So what a lot of people call an agile coach today, I think that there's a blend between that and what we call a manager. And that's, there's going to be this healthy thing. Like that's the future where it's more mentoring, it's coaching, it's facilitating, it's helping people discover how to, how to bring their best self to work. Um, those are the things that I think a manager does. They're not doing any of the work anymore. And that's like one of the hardest things to let go. And I, I have it all the time. Like it's like I want to jump in and do this, or I have this vision in my head of what this thing's going to look like, and it doesn't come out. But I'm like, oh, that works. I got to just leave it. They did it. It's theirs. They own it. That's even better than me owning any part of it. And I think that takes a conscious uh, or awareness, conscious awareness to, to to do those things. So that's the kind of stuff that I think a manager is going to. But most organizations are not set up to to support that structure. They also aren't set up in more of a network f- format. So I think that. Um, Teams that are that favor more self-selected and that are real teams are are, are the future. Less work group, um, top-down, um, functional type teams are, are I think are things we're going to fade away from in the future. Joanna, what are what are your thoughts as we kind of like dive into a bunch of different topics here? Where management's going? So I really hope that management turns into much more coaching rather than doing. I. And in one of the books, and I'm pretty sure I touch on this in both books one and two, I don't see how you can actually participate on a team and be a full manager, that you're always being pulled apart by either the technical work or the management work. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, I know of, and I have some clients where they have very strong technical leads whom they call managers because that's the career ladder. They don't have a place to put these people. Um, God, I'm going to use this word. They, They cannot slot people into their career ladder because the career ladder is based on individual work. Yeah. Right. So the, they have old career ladders and they have to call these people managers to pay them properly mm. and and to explain their influence over the organization. OK, so that's the title, but the the job description, the actual job has to be much more of a coach. And when I I actually started to talk about some of this stuff in in 2010, um, I gave a talk at the Agile Conference about um, managers being the essence of Agile leadership. And that's when I realized we have way too many manager title people in the organization doing insufficient real leadership work. And we, um, and Jeff M, I, I feel like I'm back in kindergarten. Sorry. Um, um, Jeff, as a product owner, you know, they ha- we have way too few product owners and really effective product managers in the organization. And I, I think that the, the future is we don't need that many managers to support and lead teams if you teach them, right, teach lead coach, how to offer each other feedback and coaching. We, mm-hmm. There are many organizations where we still have some form of financial um, ownership is the wrong word, but financial responsibility maybe 
mm-hmm. um, in in a single person called a manager. Okay, fine. We we need to. We always need to manage money in our personal lives and our organizations. I have no problem with that. But we need all the the manager led feedback and coaching, all that stuff, manager-led assignment, that has got to be inside the team, right? Not as a part of management. So I think that I'm hoping, actually, that people use these books and the eventual workshops I will create to to transform, probably slowly, (laughs) how people manage. And I, I really hope that um, the people who really want to be technical um, become architects mm-hmm. embedded into into teams, become product owners embedded into teams. I mean, and then if we if we can create job ladders that make a whole lot more sense, that you don't have to go quote up to get the raise and the promotion, yep. but you can go sideways in terms of your influence. I think now we have an organization that is. Oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this word. Will scale because it's mm-hmm. fractal, yep. right? Um, networks. You started off talking about networks. Networks that are fractal scale very, very easily, right? That's why I'm such a fan of the small world network. But networks based on hierarchy, oh, yeah, lot of overhead. Right. Networks versus versus merit is kind of what you're talking about there. So having a direct path where you can stay technical and maybe even be on the C-suite, like a CTO or something like that. Like there's companies that are doing that out there like that, but it's not the norm. Um, and, I, and I know so many people that you're like, you're what you're talking about where they're like the rock star developer. They were really great at their craft. They loved what they were doing, but they're like, I've been sitting here at the same pay, you know, ladder for, you know, five years and I want to take the next step. Like I've got a family, I've got kids, I got, I want to do these extra things. And so they take this manager position and they don't really realize that they're leaving behind one career and they're starting a whole new career being a manager. Like they have, that's, they're two different things and they may not like that one. And a lot of them find they don't. And so I think that's a really good point that like we need to enable people to be the best version of themselves and keep going in that direction if that's what they love. Because man, having people that are rock star developers that, know what they that are really good at that we we can't have enough of them in the world and in your organizations you know and, and oh yeah you were, like you were just saying though that that seems like such a holdover way of thinking right we've got the thinkers and we've got the doers and so we need to pay the thinkers more uh to help keep the doers in line right um and this this is one of the things are lots of great things that the army taught me but um army is struggling with this as well and so I was I was part of this the the signal branch, and so it, you can think of signal as the IT branch of the army, right? If electricity or current flows through it, it we're, we're in charge of it. Okay, so everything from the coffee maker in the talk all the way up to the digital communications equipment, uh, keeping all the networks online, etc. And so we, we we have privates come in, going through, getting trained to to operate on all of this stuff, and essentially in in a civilian world, those are network administrators, right? Um, network administrator, even entry-level position, maybe $35,000, $40,000 on the low end of the spectrum. And and I mean, these privates are making like 50 bucks a day or something like that. Um, but yet me as the the, the lieutenant or, or the, the, um, the the commissioned officer overseeing them, um, making just stupid, stupid night and day difference from them. But yet these people are just, just as smart as I am, if not smarter, right? Um, 
and the army's trying to figure that out. And they're like, well, why can't we retain people? Well, because <laughs> what, why, why would you stick around for 50 bucks a day when you can go and make a hundred dollars an hour or whatever it is in the civilian world? Now that's always been a, been a problem, but so I correlate that now back into to kind of what we're talking about in organizations, like um, not to diminish the role of the manager, but like, they're not making anything cool. All right. Like, Nobody's paying, like no customers like, I'd like to buy some management from you. No, they want to buy a product <laughs> from you, right? <laughs> but yet oh. we've got the managers that tend to be on the higher end of the pay scale. Um, and, and it just seems like, again, kind of, I'll, I'll end this rant, but that just seems like maybe more theory X versus theory Y, or just a misunderstanding of like, where, where is the real value generation happening in organizations? And I would say it's likely the frontline workers. So, Joanna, this kind of brings a, a question like, why do organizations exist and why do managers exist? Maybe we can dive into that because I think Jeff just kind of led us right down that path. Well, he, I, I really wanted to talk about the cost, the um, okay. flow efficiency also. But, yeah, so managers exist to create this harmonic hole if we, if we literally take the Drucker quote. And, you know, as I was doing the research to figure out, well, I, I know what works, but I need to back that up with the research. And I started to reread um, Drucker and I thought, oh, my God, he talked about all this stuff, you know, 50, 60, however many years ago. And um, this harmonic whole is a team that can work together, a team that can create together and ship together. And then organizations exist because of innovation. If an organization stops innovating, they they spiral down. Now, I I have certainly worked for uh, innovation is not sufficient, but it is necessary. You still have to manage the money. You still have to choose the right products and services, mm -hmm. right? But if you think about where where do we want to innovate for which customers, you are much more likely to create an ongoing. Um, positive cash flow organization. So if I think about management and where the value is, I really think it's um, in serving that team that can create without delays. So one of the reasons I'm so big on flow efficiency is because every time we start to look at the work time and the wait time, we realize, oh my goodness, we are are, it almost does not matter how long we think this thing will take. The delays in our system create um, create so many impediments for us to release. If we could just, if we could have the delays, right? If, if, if we have delays of 40 hours, if we could just make that 20 hours, mm -hmm. we could ship another thing every week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's the delays of decision-making, which you really talk a lot about in your book, right? Like, especially yeah. from a manager's perspective or leadership perspective, I'm thinking back of some large organizations that well, Jeff and I both worked with. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, to make a decision, and it might not even be that big of a decision. We might have to, first, we have a conversation with someone to float an idea. Then we have to float it with their manager. Then like, that's really good. Let's get you on the steering committee meeting a month from now. Great. Okay, we'll create a PowerPoint. Oh, that was a good idea. Loved it. But two people weren't there because they had a conflict. So you're going to have to come back next month and give the overview of that. Then you come back and give the overview because you didn't give the full context. They're not on board. You need to go to their team meeting and you needed to go explain something. Anyway, I'm just giving publicating a path that like a simple decision 
is waiting is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for and months. Team, for months for a team months. to do something. And that's the your biggest cost of delay. So any estimate of how long it's going to take, it's like who can, who can guess the the I don't know the bureaucracy level that we're going to have on this decision to get this thing out the door. I don't know. Like I can tell you how long it might take us as a team to deliver this once we have the information or you know we're set free. But the delay the, uh, that's a hard one. So when I was teaching, I, I realized this in kind of in spades when I was teaching a project portfolio workshop for a, a relatively small client, um, only about three or 400 people in the entire company. And they really had trouble understanding what their project portfolio was and how often they could make a decision. They, they up until I taught them, they, they used from September 1st, to December 31st to plan for the next year. And this included estimation and what do we want to do and capital equipment. Their only capital equipment was computers <laughs> for the staff. I mean, it was just crazy. And then in January, they, of course, did not get to it the first week of January. They got to it the second or third week of January because they were still gathering data. So in the second or by mid-January, they created a project portfolio for the entire year. So remember, they had spent a four full months on this in advance. By the middle of February, they had to throw it out. So all of this waste, when I said to them, um, don't bother with estimations. Just think about the value Right. And and if you if if the team then comes back to you and says, you want this thing, we realize you want this thing. It's going to take us, you know, two years to deliver it. Then you can say, we really need this one thing now. And we are not we are not the software organizations that I started with in the 70s. We can ship. <laughs> we don't have to wait for a box. We don't have to wait to to develop TCP IP or FTP, we have them. We even if we have firmware inside of a piece of equipment, right? Uh, like our headsets, um, we can we can either ship something earlier that might not be the ultimate product, or we can figure out a way to to re to update the firmware as we go. As long as we tell the customer, right? Don't mm -hmm. don't change the firmware on them unless they know. But we have many, many more options for shipping. Yeah, yeah. It's not that model year, you know, shipping process anymore. And and so anybody who's planning that long or the, those big horizons, I think that they're think they're still in that analysis mindset of where like we think we can plan all this stuff out and we know what's going to happen in the future. And if you're there, man, let's go to Vegas. Like if you can do that, like we, we can, let's go I to Vegas. And go to, yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Um, but what really it's like, shouldn't we be optimizing for learning? Like how fast can I learn something? I just need to learn something. Can I learn something this week? Can I learn something today? Like what could we put out there to learn to prove an assumption, to get some facts, and then that can lead us to the next thing. And and based on what we learn, we're going to pivot and make different financial decisions, and we have to balance that with the cash flow. And so maybe those are the types of things that if we just make that transparent, give the information to the people doing the work, and say, you know, here's what we're looking for from an outcome standpoint. Let's help you through this and teach them um, and teach them about that as as they walk through it. Because the first time is going to be really hard. They're going to be like, "What am I oh. even looking at here?" Right. Um, I think that's how we get 
instead of a couple minds figuring something out, we get a whole large group of people all going in the same direction because they have the same why. So I I can't remember if it was before we were recording or right at the beginning. Uh, It doesn't really matter. But um, Johanna, you were talking about how you were just working with some product owners and they really just didn't even understand the why of their product. Um, And I feel like that is the usually, especially a bigger organization, but that's the byproduct of what you were just talking about, the annual planning, right? Our betters get together and they get into a room and they figure out the strategic direction for next year. And then they think about all the tactical things that they want to be doing for next year. And they create the list, right? All the lists of work that we're going to be doing. Um, or in other words, the plan, right? And so then they give the plan to the people and it's it's agile execution, right? Ideally, at least agile execution. We're gonna iterate on this stuff, see what experiments we can run to what Jeff is talking about. But when, when we spend so much time doing that, like the goal really becomes to, to, to execute the plan. And we try mm-hmm. as hard as we can to stick to the plan. And we forget mm-hmm. that it's not like Jeff was talking, it's about responding to change. It's about validating assumptions and all of this stuff. But the more time and effort we put into generating the plan, the more attached we are to the plan because we put in so much effort to create (laughs) the plan. Why would we want to deviate from the plan? Um, And so I feel like that's a vicious cycle. And and, and what I'm hearing here is, well, let's turn that into a virtuous cycle where we don't spend so much time with the plan. We spend more time executing and learning and validating. And then, great, it, it becomes so much easier to change direction organizationally or at a team level or whatever that happens to be because we didn't invest so much time and we don't have that attachment to the plan anymore. What, what do you guys think? So if you if you substitute, I'm not going to try and do my old, old um, computer stuff. Substitute plan for user interface. Substitute plan for test plan substitute plan for development you will see that managers are and this is not because they're they're stupid bad or wrong this is the system that they have created that is forcing this behavior the system says we need to plan for an entire year and there are there are some financial reasons to do this but you don't have to have detailed plans you can say we are going to have um boundaries for when we assess the money, right? And how we report all the money stuff. But instead of of our um, cost accounting driving our behaviors, we can say, even if we cannot use lean accounting, we can use lean ideas to work on, here's what we will validate as management learning as soon as possible. And that means you actually give a whole lot more, um, what's the word I want, freedom to the teams to say, and especially if you say to the teams, oh, we really need this one thing so this one customer will get off our backs. How little can you do to deliver to this one customer? And I really like how little thinking. I, I don't think I wrote about that this that much in these books. Mm-hmm. Um I write about how little thinking a lot on my blog and in my newsletter. And yes, the product owner book will have how little thinking. But it's all about how how can we do something now that allows us to learn, that allows us to acquire a customer, that gives us some kind of value. And I, I, I think that what we've been kind of circling around in this conversation is how do we define value mm-hmm. and how do we... Um, express it in the organization, both in people and their jobs and what we ship to customers. 
it's a good place to go. So I like how um, in your book, you talk about value and we're talking about balancing it between three different entities. Generally, it's the, the end customer that's consuming it. It's the internal organization and the other people around them. So if you're building out a capability that somebody else can use or something like that and what they need. And then um, what was the third one? And then the employees that are actually there, the people doing the work. Because if you're happy, if you're enjoying what you're doing, you're going to be more more productive. You're going to produce better ideas. You're going to innovate be- be more um, if you have the employees that are completely bought into it and their happiness. So okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you right there. Happiness is an outcome. Okay. Satisfaction is what I think we need to aim for. So um, I. My happiness, okay, I'm an optimist. I'm a rainbow and unicorns person. I will just freely admit that. I am happy or unhappy based on my satisfaction with various things in my life. I can be happy and satisfied at work if I am satisfied with the work. I can still be unhappy if something else is going on for me, right? Mm -hmm. Something at home. um, My kids are grown right now which is good because I think I might be in jail for murder if they were still at home. I don't know how anybody does this with kids. Um, So instead of looking for happiness, I look for satisfaction and a pride in what I have done. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I coach managers to look for. Happiness is an outcome of many, many things, but satisfaction, pride in our work, Yes, that we have a lot more influence over. So that's something I love being happy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I don't get that uh, just from work. And I, I, I think that this is, um, yeah. Yep. I I like that. Um, Satis. I like the pride in your work. And then I think if you could couple that with like, um, emotional, um, safety, Oh um, yeah, you know psychological safety. I think those are like the two things I'm thinking. Like, man, when I, when I I'd be, I mean, a Monday might come and I might be like, oh, that weekend was awesome. I'd like one more day a weekend. But when I get there and I create something with this team and I feel safe and I feel this team atmosphere, I'm gonna feel pretty good about that when I go home. Like I accomplished something today, and I think yeah. that's that's what people are looking for, right? So it's not so much like the pleasure of happiness that we're talking about. Like it's more like. Do we have purpose in what we're doing and do, are we proud of that? And do we enjoy the people we work with and can we, do we feel like we contribute to that team? So that that's great. I like, I like that, that clarification. Thank you. Yeah. That's why it's part of all the principles, right? If we know our purpose, the value we provide as, as an, as an individual, as part of this team, um, the entire organization and we have psychological safety with our peers, our cohort, wherever they are. And we send empathy to others and we receive empathy in return. Now we have, we really have the basis for an, an excellent um, system, an excellent culture, an excellent environment where people can have pride in their work and, and do the best job they can. Will they always quote, succeed? No. <laughs> Sorry, I yelled. Um, no, uh, no, they won't. That's part of the learning. So um, we were talking before about our how attached we could be to our plans. 
And the more, the longer we spend planning, the more attached we are. So Mm -hmm. the faster we plan and deliver something, the faster we learn. So that's, that's the feedback cycle I want. And the faster we learn and we see what we have learned, regardless of whether or not we like it, we might be uncomfortable momentarily. I can live with discomfort. I have, right? But I, I really want to know, how can I not endure this discomfort again? And that's what I really want to do. So it's partly learning from our mistakes and reinforcing what we can do that goes really well. Do you think part of that reason why people want to plan is the system that's out there and that we reward people for the getting things, quantity of things done. And so because we have that reward system where people think I did a good job because I, I upgraded, you know, 50 databases today. So I got a lot done. It's like, okay, what did that do for us for outcomes? Why, why was that an advantage um, for the organization? How do we make more money? How do we satisfy more customers? How are people more satisfied? Um, but if we had something that was more like, why well, learn this today? Here's a learning outcomes. And we really pushed that. And I don't really care so much what you had to do to get there, but I'm looking at how do we learn and how do we take advantage of those learnings? Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on something like that? Jeff? So, I, I just wanted to quick chime in because it made me chuckle. When I first started consulting, literally my first gig, uh, there was just, just this character and he was, he was some like mid-level manager he literally kept a stack of papers on the corner of his desk. And every time he got up, regardless of whether he was going to the bathroom or he was going to meet with somebody else, he'd pick that stack of papers up and he'd roll them and he'd walk around with that stack of papers. And I, and he, he walked by and he'd always be got a stack of papers. I'm a busy guy. Uh, and that's literally <laughs> what they were there for is to like, he learned that the culture was you need to look busy. All right. It's not about what you actually produce with it. It's about looking like you're busy. Uh, and, and you hit on this, Johanna, again and again and again uh, in the book was uh, that that outcome instead of output focus. And, and I think that's kind of, Jeff, where you were going with this. But yeah. um, sorry, go ahead, Johanna, with what you were thinking. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember what, where we were. I think um, we were just talking about the culture like of oh. like outcomes being like what people are rewarded for or outputs are what people are rewarded for. So yeah. Until you you can't switch to a learning environment or a learning organization until you, you focus more on those outcomes. Well, yeah, um, I I think I I was doing a search in in the books at one point for outcomes and I um, and then outputs and I I had a whole bunch of them. I was looking for where I where uh, some, I was looking for something specific, so I had to look for a different phrase. Um, I find. So I, I see this in my in my consulting, in my coaching, in my teaching, even for me. Um, when it, let me just use writing as an example. I I teach writing workshops, and I'm I'm trying to figure out how to offer them a little bit more frequently because I have my own writing to do. So and I I start off with outputs. Right. I say to people, I don't care what this is, just write for 15 minutes a day because you need to build the habit. And then by the end of the third or fourth week, I say, um, probably by the end of the third week, knowing me, um, send me an article that you wrote. Right. So if you write 15 minutes a day, writing a thousand words is really only four days. Right. 
and this is this is not quote hard end of quote to do, but this this outcome based ask that I have changes everything about what people do, and they now realize oh, I need to really think about my writing differently. We see this in the organization all the time. And the more we we try to measure people based on the time that they're in the office, mm-hmm. I had a couple of myths about that. Um, if you're not typing, you're not thinking. I mean, these are all things I had, I have learned by my observations and experience as either an in-person, in-organization manager or as a consultant. These things happen all the time. None of this is new. Mm -hmm. So changing the environment to think about outcomes as opposed to outputs, that's a really hard thing. That means we, we often have to change the reward system. So I have been working with some organizations on their agile transformations, um, I really hate to use that word because it sounds like there's an end, but that's mm-hmm. what they're calling it. Fine. And when I said to one of them, "What? What? let's talk about products and then let's talk about the reward system. And that was in our discovery call. <laughs> I guess I did too much consulting in the discovery call because they said to me, I don't think we can do this. We are not based on products and we are our HR people have a stranglehold on the on the various career ladders and the reward system. And I said, okay, good that you know you cannot do this. Bad for me. <laughs> but but good that you know. And um, would you like when would you like to talk about our next steps? And they said, You have given us so much to think about. We 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 don't know. So I'm sure I lost that business, but I think it would have been way too um, frustrating for them and for me if I if I had literally won that business. I think that they are not they are not in a headspace. They are not. They don't have a culture that would allow them to even consider business agility. They just don't have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if they came into it thinking, um, well, we're going to throw a couple practices towards the team. They're going to do this thing called the daily scrum I heard about. They're going oh, to yeah. do some planning. We're going to have this review thing. And you know what? Things are going to be amazing. We're going to see a big uptick in productivity. We're going to have more stuff done. We're going to see great business results. It's like, no, no, no. There's, there's much more to it than yeah. a bunch of events and some new roles and things like that. So the the magic comes with putting the right people organized around the right problems and have these problem-solving teams that are aligned around the right thing, right? Like that, that alignment and get removing that you know, focusing on that flow efficiency where they can actually get stuff done. Like that's the magic. Like all the, there's some superficial, I shouldn't say superficial, but there's practices that are out there that they, they help, but they're not, they're not the end state. And I think maybe a lot of people have that. I have that too, where they, that's what they think going into it. It's like, we're just going to add some practices. This is for the team. Me as a leader, I don't have to change anything. And it's like, no, no, you're probably going to change more than anyone else. Well, that's, that was the whole point of book three right? Lead an innovative organization. Because I found that um, so many well-meaning managers, right? I, I talked, I talk about um, this well-meaning manager wants the agile, right? He doesn't know what the agile is. He is not a stupid guy. He's not mm-hmm. reading all the stuff that we're reading, no. right? He, he understands nimbleness. He understands adaptability. He understands resilience. He wants the agile. 
And um, when I said to him, uh, this is an instance of lean thinking, he was actually smart enough to say, I don't want to constrain people to not make mistakes. So smart guy, right? And he does not, when I, when I spoke with him, he actually said, um, can you, can you make a standard agile approach? So I said, you are a smart guy. If you think about a standard next to agile, next to approach, right? Does that make sense to you? And he said, okay, fine. It doesn't. <laughs> I mean, so he's not an idiot. I, I really, I want to make us, I really want to extend empathy to the managers out there who are not reading the same things we are, who are not listening to the same podcast, who don't, who at least feel that they don't have time to read the same stuff. And if we can, if we can say here, if we think about business agility as adaptability all throughout the organization, which means we need cohorts of managers working together so that they have, they reduce their whip and increase their flow efficiency at all levels. Mm -hmm. We will, we don't, we might not need practices. I am not a fan of the, of the daily scrum. Sorry. I'm a fan of walking the board on a yeah. frequent basis. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And well, talk, talking about flow and things that are getting old and what are we going to do about that to move that forward, to get that to done. I think those are also really good practices. So yeah, I, I agree. So I think that those three questions that status update, most mm -hmm. people don't, that's not what we're up, up. You know, that's not what we want in the daily scrum. Um, so you said a lot of really good things there. Um, can I, can I sure. yeah Jeff go ahead Jeff okay um so I you you were talking just a lot now about you know they're not reading the things that we're reading and this is I you know I had the same question when we were talking with Daryl Daryl Bigsby um from from Bain and company they what was what was their book that they had put out uh doing agile right yep doing agile right I was like looking over at my bookshelf over there um Great, great read. Um, you know, even even Gary Hamill and, and the stuff that he's putting out. And, you know, I don't know if maybe we just live in our agile bubble. But, um, you know, I, I asked the question, well, like, why why would a manager read this book? Right. What are the books that a, a typical management degree? I don't even know if there is. Right. I, I, I came up as a developer, got into management. So I don't know if that's the typical course. But I guess my question is, like, how how do you how do you expose or like what? are the books that managers are reading that maybe sets them up to be in these, these, you know, output over outcome focused mindsets that we've been talking about or local optimizations that they're, they're going after instead of seeing the entire system, like what, what is that route that they get exposed to that? And then like, what does it matter if we write a million books, but they never get the exposure to them. So what, what are your thoughts there, Johanna? So my, my older daughter took an MBA and she said one of the things she really loved was evaluating projects for the project portfolio. And I said, Oh, I, I wrote a book about that. <laughs> yeah. My kids. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the same kind of mother, right. Kids and, and parents. So um, I said, how do you do that? She said, ROI. I said, Really? They're still teaching ROI to evaluate the project portfolio? That's so old-fashioned. And she said to me, but I can do it in a spreadsheet. I said, that's true. And um, that spreadsheet is not very useful in the organization. Unless you're talking about maybe only manufacturing widgets. But even so, 
I think I think there's a lot of stuff happening in manufacturing that's very exciting, right? This personalization, yeah, that's that's a totally different problem. Okay, stop with that, Johanna. So um, she she graduated in twenty was that fourteen with her MBA, so not that many years ago. Mm-hmm. And we, I had already published the first version of the Project Portfolio book in 2009. So it was there. Other, some professors are, were using it. I think that they still are using it for their classes because <laughs> every so often I sell 25. <laughs> pretty, I'm pretty sure that that's, um, that's a, a class. So I find that, um, our, our business schools, our, our managers, if you go to a even a prestigious and well-known management program, they are still using texts from the 80s and 90s who have ignored Drucker because, you know, Drucker was old, and they're still into managing, thinking that the organization is a well-oiled machine, mm-hmm. that they have a very mechanistic view of, of management and managing. And um, as I said, in one of the books, embrace the messiness. We're all human. How can we optimize for being human? And I, I think that that's really, um, we are not optimizing for our, our both our greatest strengths and quote, our greatest weaknesses. Um, we are always going to have the weaknesses. So why not optimize for the strengths? Mm-hmm. And and manage to that. See what we can do to optimize more strengths. And that's all in the network. That's all in how our how uh, we work together. How we can reduce the delay time for decision making. How we can extend more decision making into teams and maybe individuals. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all that stuff. So. Um- like you, you just like shot across the bow there earlier when you're like ROI. Why are we so? I I got to know like what am I screwing up here? So when I'm when I'm working with with the teams, that's that's what's running through my head at all the times. Now um, we're we're talking about the ideas and we're we're using data to track you know roughly how big these things are, uh, not from an estimation point of view, but just saying hey, what's the typical size that something comes through here, right? So using confidence intervals, hey, 50, with 50% confidence, this thing will be done in five days or less, okay? Uh, is, is that, and that's close enough for me. I know roughly how big this thing is that we're talking about. And then I'm the one doing just some napkin math here. Okay, I think this is gonna affect X number of users and or increase our users by X amount or uh, increase our, our uh, potential uh, uh, revenue amount by being able to increase uh, what we're charging for each one of our products, blah, blah, blah. Right, you know, just really quick back of the napkin math to help me order things on a product backlog. Um, to me, that's ROI. Is that what you're thinking of when you're saying, hey, ROI, that's like, there are better ways of doing this. And, and if so, teach me. Teach me what are those better ways. <laughs> oh, no. What you talked about with ROI, that back of the neck and back of the napkin math. Um, yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. Okay. She was actually talking about calculating the number of units sold, what people would pay for those units. With and that's of course without thinking about cost of delay, which automatically decreases um, decreases the 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 maximum sales. And she was, and this is what she was taught, right? How can you predict with certainty 
how long this is going to take, what will we spend to get this amount of return? And if we think about um, spending means we make decisions. We have cost of delay or opportunity cost, whatever, however it is you think about it, for the stuff we're not doing. Mm-hmm. And we have potential revenue or, um, or at least what we think will happen for the stuff we are doing. And the other Jeff actually said, how fast can we learn? And so if we can take something and put it out there, and maybe that something is bigger than I would like, maybe we cannot put something out there every single day. Maybe we have a minimum of a couple of months before we can put enough stuff out there that's useful for a customer to use and give us feedback or buy, right? That could easily be. But if we if we then say, how, how little can we do to put something out? How fast can we learn? If we optimize for speed of learning and for speed of, of decision-making so we can, we can focus everybody on this one thing to deliver something and see what happens, now we have a whole lot more flexibility in the organization for how we choose and how we manage our money because we're not we're not investing all this up front right and this actually oh, I'm going to say the scales word again this this actually scales to programs that are very very large i mean you're not going to put out a, an airplane that does not fly Right, an airplane is a different kind of a product, but you could do demos of the of the computers in the airplane and say, "Here, uh, I I just got this from Chris Lee. I love it. Here's what we made. Want to see it?" Um, I I really love that kind of language because that really invites people into seeing what the demo is, and then when they see the demo, especially if it's only a week or two of work, we are not so attached to it. Right, this this investment in work means we are so so attached to what we produce. Um, that's because we're human, right? Let's let's just admit it. So, how can we learn something faster? And that's especially at the management level. If we think of, not just about products that that quote the people make, but if we think about our decisions, how fast can we make a decision and see? how well it's working or not working. How can we see what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because and you won't know that. And so that's the thing about the planning that we we're talking about before. Like, I get it. I build this thing with l- low fidelity. I say, hey, what do you think? Let's review this thing. Can you use this? Yeah, I could. I mean, I can use this part of it, but I can't use it th- to do this. This is really what I want it for. You're like, oh, well, that's not bad. I already got this in the database. I already got a service that does this. I just got to aggregate some data here or throw it up on a UI for you. Like that, I don't want to say it's easy, but like there's a lot of things where it's like, yeah, cool. Next time, next week, we'll get you that, you know, or whatever. And uh, you won't know those things until you actually show people it. And then you get that feedback and then you build the next thing. It's like, no, no, I didn't mean quite this. It meant something else. Thinking back, I was working with this client a couple of years ago and um, the product owner was very new to being a product owner that came from the business. And, and we we're building this thing. It was for an insurance company. And um, he had planned it all out. Like, this is exactly what I want before we got there. Had all this this big requirements document, everything. 
And um, we started building. I'm like, okay, okay, let's just start building something. Let's get the first step that we can actually use. And we got that first page with this first little like grid layout out there. And uh, he's like, I know that's what I said I wanted. But now that I see it and I, and I start to look at it, I can't use this. We need to rescrap everything I said before. You're right. And it was like, it was just like light bulb of like, oh, yes, I need to switch the way I'm thinking about this. And that's happened so many times. So I love that story. But I think that that's how you get that learning, right? It's like you, um, you can, you can, you still plan high level, but you don't need to plan at that detail level because you're going to learn so much throughout here and you're going to, you're going to pivot and change um, as you, as you build out your product. So, well, and, and I actually um, showed some examples of that in management conversations in the books, right? There, there were a couple of, um, I didn't say that they were introverted managers, but in my experience, they were introverted managers who really needed to write out a script for what they wanted to say. They were, they knew enough not to use the script but they needed to write it down because that's how they processed the information. And then first thing in the script, right, the other person responded differently and, and they thought, oh, okay. So um, this is, we do this as managers. We do this in product teams. We do this in, in managing the project portfolio. We do this everywhere. And I really want to optimize for my learning in every single thing. So how can I do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the mindset shift right there is optimizing for learning instead of following the plan. Right. Yep. Yeah. Jeff, looks like you're ready to jump in with something. I, I always got that shit eating grin when I, <laughs> I um, yeah. So it, it was, I, I distinctly remember that, that part when I was reading the book of, of having that, um, that outline of what you want, the, the script. And the the one time in my career when I was a manager, when I had to do a, a pip for, for somebody, I, I had that. It was it was an unpleasant situation to be in for both, both parties, honestly. Um, and it totally went off script right away. But it, it was nice having that there because I knew those were the, the high points or the not the high points, but the things that I needed to hit. And so those were the anchor for the conversation. And so sometimes I think about that same way with with the product development or, you know, building building the vision statement is. Um, granted, we're still going to learn things in here, but we there are some anchors that we want to kind of reorient ourselves back to that we want to be continuing to, to steer in direction. And that in the same way that a vision statement or a, a product goal, a sprint goal, any type of goal, any type of outcome that you're moving towards, well, then that creates the flexibility for you to do that inspecting and adapting and be doing that changing and whatnot. And if you learn something and it changes your overall, that's fine. But um, you always have that North Star to kind of go back to and say, okay, well, let's steer this conversation or this development back over to this area right here. Um, so th- that was always kind of nice. One wh- one other kind of general thing uh, that, that I wanted to, to talk with you, uh, because I found it coming up again and again when I was reading through the books, and, and it was it was awesome. Um, when I started out my management journey, um, I was very fortunate to work in an organization that really embraced all many of the things that you, that you were talking about in your book. Um, and one of the tools that we used was a podcast called manager tools. And I was one, I was kind of curious if you had heard of them. Um, but really they, they jokingly refer to it as the Trinity, which is as a manager, you should be focusing on these, these things, which is coaching one-on-one feedback and delegation. Like those are the core 
things that as a manager you should be focusing on and doing for the people that you're there to serve. Um, and so I, I saw so much of that just coming up in your book again and again. And I, and I was just curious, like, ha, have you heard of those individuals before or had you ever uh, gotten any of their material in the past? I have heard of them and I did not realize they have a podcast. Um, I, I used to subscribe to their feed, their, um, their RSS feed and my reader, and they, they produce so much content. I actually dropped them. Um, cause so much to read, so little time. And I, I, I was so familiar with their content, right? So sure. I thought, oh, I need to, I need to read stuff I don't know. Mm-hmm. So sure. um, I am sure uh, they were really smart people before. I'm sure they are really smart people now and people should probably listen to them and read them. And now that I know that they have a podcast, I will probably add that to my podcast feed. Yeah, I, I was just so, so curious because there there was so, um, a, a lot of commonalities there and it was super influential for me to kind of be thinking about that stuff when when I was going through it in, in learning management. Um, and the the last thing I'll, I'll kind of say on this, you know, over over the holidays. So Jeff mentioned way back in my heyday, I was a, a video game developer and that's what I went to school for. Um, really enjoyed it and really kind of put it down after my first first job. Um, but over this holiday, I was like, you know what, screw it. Like, I'd, I'd love to just get back in there and, and learn a little bit about games today. And so I downloaded Unity. It's a game engine if you're not familiar with it. Um, and so over the holiday, I spent about two weeks just jumping in there, learning, learning animation, loading, uh, loading characters into a world. Um, Cause I never really worked with a game engine before and I had, had a lot of fun doing it. And I spent a lot of time on YouTube looking at all these tutorials and whatnot. And I was just like, what do we even need schools for anymore? Like I'm, I'm fully confident that I could have learned how to do all of this stuff on YouTube or, you know, maybe paying a few dollars and jumping into Skillshare or something like that. Um, and, and I'm sure schools still have a, have a place, but I just thought, wow, especially for software development, like do you really need to go to school for this stuff anymore? Or can you just jump online or maybe something like Khan Academy or something more virtual like that? So anyway, sorry, I've taken the conversation in a very different direction here, but uh, I've just, I was thinking about, um, you know, 15 years ago, that first consulting gig. And when you're a consultant, you're brought in as the expert, right? You're supposed to know all the things. Um, And I was like, I distinctly remember one, it was so super embarrassing. I, I couldn't remember that, um, I think it was in Java because I was just learning Java at the time that uh, the URLs are, are are case sensitive. Like you had to upper lowercase it to actually bring something up. And I didn't know that. And I felt so embarrassed in front of a customer. But the reason I was thinking about that was I was like, I literally have to, I used to have to lug books around with me. Mm-hmm. To, if I ever had a question, okay, I could go to the book and try and search and find it. And now, you know, you've got the, the internet at, at your fingertips and just thinking about how that is, so change things with like, hey, when I was, a, I never went to, ma- to manager school, never went to business school, but I was able to really quickly and easily learn. I shouldn't say easily or quickly, I guess, uh, but I had access to it. It was so easy to get at you. And now you've got these awesome books, like what you're, the content you're putting on. You said it even started as blog articles, a monthly blog article. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's just, uh, sorry, I will end this rant. I promise. Um, I just finished up a, a product owner course the other day and it was like, uh, one of the students was, all right, so what's my next step? You know, what, what, what is the next step on this journey? Where, where should I be going and looking? I'm like, just open Google and type in product ownership. All right. You're going to get just a mountain of information thrown at you and just start, start 
jumping in a little bit here, a little bit over there, right? You're you're going to pretty quickly find the good sources. You're going to weed out the bad ones. But think about all of this as a journey, all right? You just came through a product owner course. You learned a lot of really cool stuff because obviously it was with me, right? Um, and yeah, I'm humble as well, right? But I, I, I always try to articulate to students, this is the gateway drug. This, this should be opening up your mindset to say, wow, there's so much information out there. This is a journey that I just started when I went through this class. And now it's the initiative that I need to show to, to actually go out there and try and find a lot of other great content and a lot of other great stuff that's out there. So, end rant. So let me adjust a couple of things. One is that um, I don't know the future of secondary school. I think that uh, there is something to be said for um, helping 18-year-olds separate from their parents and learn how to adult. Um, oh, yeah. That's, mm -hmm. that's a different problem than supposedly what schools offer. Um, mm -hmm. I, I... I have a BS in computer science from 1977. I'm not sure that understanding how electrical systems work in digital design or interrupts in the operating system are at all useful anymore. And my master's is from 1985 and it was, <laughs> I hesitate to say it was an in artificial intelligence, um, but that was, I mean, 1985 and artificial intelligence, intelligence rule-based systems, right? Not what we have now, not at all. So my technical expertise has certainly degraded. My ability to think, however, was enhanced by my college education. So learning critical thinking skills. So what you said, Jeff, about um, type in product ownership in Google, that requires having critical thinking skills to say, who is reasonable in this space? Mm. Who, who do I want to affiliate with? And who is just parroting other stuff that's not very useful? Those the critical thinking skills are, we need more of them. And I don't know how to teach them except by experience and reflecting on the experience, which is why I really like learning something and then reflecting on it. So, I, I mean, I think you had a really good rant there. However, um, if I can talk about what management, how little management is actually taught in, in either an undergraduate or a graduate degree, they rare, those, uh, the, those programs rarely talk about people. They almost always talk about uh, the financials of the system, and if and if they don't teach innovation, and how how can you, you can um, create an environment for innovation? How you create an environment where teams work together? If you don't talk about that stuff, you're not talking about management. Even even if they left out book one, right? Man, how to manage yourself? Even if they left that part out, a lot of that would come out. If you actually started to talk about how do you lead and serve teams? How do you tell them? How do you actually decide on a strategy for the organization? Most of my clients do not have a reasonable strategy. They talk about, oh, we want to be the best here and lead this industry. That's nonsense. That, that's an outcome of having mm -hmm. a strategy that you yeah. implement, right? So this is why... 
I don't know how to teach critical thinking skills on purpose in a college-based curriculum. And I don't think we need college for that. I know that I teach critical thinking skills in all of my classes, and I suspect you do too. You might not call them that, but that's what you do. And that's yep. that's how people actually say, oh, I understand this, I need to practice, and now what's the next step? The fact that they asked you what the next step was, that means you were teaching these thinking skills. And if I could, if I could figure out exactly how to write this down, yeah, that's probably a future book. <laughs> yeah, it's critical thinking, but I like to call it systems thinking. It's it's kind of both, I guess. And it's like when you can say we're here and we back up and say, how did we get here? And how does this influence everything else that we're doing around us? Like when we do activities in our courses, things like that, talking to that meta level and teaching that, I think that's maybe one way to do there do that like i don't know i try so my kids right now i've got a eight-year-old and a 10-year-old and um everything's virtual um they're actually gonna go be going back um soon in the next couple of weeks and they're gonna be kind of doing this hybrid thing but um i've spent a lot more time with them on certain aspects and helping them through stuff and i and i try to help them understand what the teacher is trying to accomplish like the work itself doing this example is not is not that doesn't really matter. What are they trying to get to and why are they trying to help you learn this and helping them see that meta level? I don't know even at eight and 10 year olds, you know, the understanding is not quite where maybe we'd want it, but the, they get certain concepts. And um, I think that's really important because I think if there's any skill you can learn, that's going to really help you in the future. It's like how to learn more because you're going to only have to learn more and more and more, right? Like, and I was saying, or maybe I got it from somewhere, but like we used to reward people for like hard work. Now in the future, we're rewarding them for learning hard. Like it's all about how fast you can learn and and pick up new things. And we don't know what those things are going to be. We just have to be able to embrace embrace change as it comes to us in the future. And so I think that's a skill for the for secondary schools, for anyone, right, to pick up and continually work on. Yeah, I, I really think that that's, if we can teach ourselves anything as humans, it's how to learn and how to learn fast. Um, yeah. Actually, that's and that's an example I have in the hiring book, because I, I have found that the people who learn fast and have sufficient um, interpersonal skills can really excel in the, in an organ, in easy for me to say, in the organization. And, and we don't have to be perfect people people. We have to learn how to get better at our people skills, these interpersonal skills. But it, we can do that with learning. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I, real quick, I want to add on, um, I, you, you also were very deliberate, I think, with with the choice of service and to serve others. And that, that came out again and again. And I think that's, um, I, I'm not sure if byproduct is the right word, but like, if you have a service mindset, you've got to be able to understand other people. You have to have a little bit of humanity in you and the ability to empathize and build those powerful relationships with people. Because I don't, I don't know if you could necessarily fake that. So um, whether that's a, a byproduct or just an associated skill, but coming in with a service mindset where I'm here to serve the people um, that I'm supposed to be leading or even just working with, right? I always joke around. Uh, I, I love the quote, a, a servant leader is an individual who inspires others to follow through an intense desire to serve, right? They put the well-being of the person to their left or right ahead of themselves. 
great. Uh, we used to call that out as a scrum master, uh, but wouldn't it just be awesome if everybody had that mindset, right? Every day you showed up to work and you were working with a team where everybody was looking out for you and you were looking out for everybody else. That sounds like a freaking awesome team to to be working with, uh, right? And right back to not only uh, you're, you're happy but satisfied with the, with the work in that type of environment that you can set up. So I've always, oh, I also, gosh, I've been ranty this morning, but like I always tell people, I'm going to look good when you look good. All right, that's yep. my job here is to make you look good, and when I do that successfully, I will look good. Um, whether that's management or product ownership, working with a team, whatever that happens to be, right? Um, my my success is 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 dependent on your success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and this actually happens um, certainly for the manager and the team, and also happens at the management cohort levels. That if mm-hmm. we serve each other as as peers, we can all succeed. Um, so often the organization has this business of a uh, zero sum game. If I, if I win, you lose. Why can't we all win? Mm-hmm. How, how, if we make each other better at the, at our peer levels of management, we can, we can improve the entire organization. And this is the part that I, I often see that it, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm being nasty to HR again, but, HR is the in, in the instantiation of the problem, right? They say we only have so much money for uh, for rewards, so you mm-hmm. have to decide who gets three percent and who gets one percent. Excuse me, that's just crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Think about the value that the person offers to the team and the organization, and um, is there any way to have more team-based rewards? So it's not the individual versus the team, but it's the individual and the team. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's all kinds of examples like this, but the more we need to find ways in the organization to make all of us better, as opposed to me better and you worse. And that that goes back to the flow efficiency, to the team-based work at all levels. Yep. I think of it as like ownership within an organization, right? We should favor shared risk and rewards over exclusive risk and rewards. Because when we say only these top group of people up here get the the high risk and reward, but these other people down here, you, you have this very little upside, then why do I want all this autonomy? And so I think if we can get to that win-win where there's the more we have, the more we can share with everybody. Um, and as an owner, I know Jeff and I have had this conversation. Maybe you've heard us talking about this before, but like, why wouldn't I want more people to be on the same page and have the same upside that I do? Because that's going to p- motivate them to be doing exactly what's going to help me. You know, like, like let's just align everybody in the same on the same path. You know? that, that's what I was going to say. Is like the the irony in the situation, Johanna, you were talking about is they are literally on the same team, right? They, like, unless you're working maybe with an outside vendor, but you're you're all in the same organization. Why on earth would we want these zero sum games that just? literally makes the organization stagnant and stay at the same place. But if you come up with non-zero-sum games where we're constantly adding and everybody is winning, well, great. That's a that's a, basically a multiplier here for your organization. Um, but in, in as you were talking, Gary Hamill's, what, what is this quote? Bureaucracy makes us all assholes or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like it, it's so true. It's so true. Uh, and, and you see it even in, even in smaller organizations. Um, where the fiefdom and, and the tribalism comes out and, and it's just that that's not helping us move forward at all. And unfortunately it's, it's 
customers and employees that pay for it because, uh, you know, customers aren't getting a great product from a zero sum organization. Um, so anyway, I feel like we, we, we have been chatting for a while, which is awesome, uh, but we should probably wrap it up here. So, Johanna, what what do you want to plug uh, other than the awesome books that we've been talking about? What's what's out there? So um, the books first, Modern Management Made Easy, books one, two and three. Um, I have uh, I am in the midst of planning uh, workshops, cohort, preferably cohort based workshops. Well, it'll, it'll either be public cohorts or private cohorts. And and so you can have a safe place to practice these things because I, I offer a ton of ideas and many, many options. And mm-hmm. boy, it's really hard to find a safe place to practice. So mm-hmm. that um, I'm planning on teaching how you can set up a coaching lab and a feedback lab for your team, the people you serve. And I, I think if we, if I only did that, that would be really great. So I have, I'm, I'm working on the outlines for those, for those workshops now. Um, and other than that, yeah, any of my books. <laughs> only 18 of them, right? And it sounds yeah. like there's a couple in the works too. So oh, that's, yeah. I'm looking forward um, to that. Yeah. I, I was realizing I have, um, if I can, I have six books planned. Uh, okay. Even I know I'm not going to write six books this year. Um, I'm going to finish two of them and get them out and out, 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 because uh, they're in progress. So I need to um, really manage my book whip. I find that, so writing books is very interesting, at least for me. It's very agile until I get to the layout and the indexing, right? All the stuff that's final that I really, I really hate finishing things. Mm-hmm. I, I I told the story about myself and, and great management feedback I got early in my career, thank God. So I have checklists now. But sometimes um, the delays between my checklist steps. Oh, God. Yeah, fine. So um, I have plenty more books planned. And yes, um, think about these. Modern Management Made Easy. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.